Hello, everyone. This is Sarah Hale here with Kevin Hale. Welcome to Vegan Theology. Hey. How are you doing today, Kevin? Good, you? It's been a really good day. Yeah, so far it has. Yeah, excited to do some more theology with you. Yeah. (laughs) And our listeners. Today, our episode is dedicated to a question that we received from a listener. Thank you, Greta, for your engagement and for reaching out to us with a question. And so, as you know, if you've been listening to us, we've been exploring kind of our our bookend framework that we've been calling just the foundation that we've been trying to, le- to lay in terms of our vegan theology, that God created a good creation and God is determined to fulfill and redeem this creation and, and to fulfill his ultimate and his original plan. And so with that, we talked about the new creation and that is the ultimate destiny that we are not escaping this earth. We're not escaping this creation. And so we, we mentioned um, in one of our episodes the idea of rapture and that that's definitely something that we were raised hearing about as Christians in, in America, but that we started calling that into question. And so Greta wrote in and said, a scripture that is used for rapture is Matthew twenty four forty. What is your understanding of this? So that kind of challenged us to do a little bit more research, get a little bit more clarity on different passages that are used for rapture. And it was a, it was a good challenge kind of took me out of my comfort zone a little bit for sure right and yeah and we do appreciate the uh, community engagement for sure mm-hmm. i mean we are trying to build a community around vegan theology so absolutely that's uh that is what we're trying to do and it's worth noting there are about six verses in the bible that really are recognized for establishing a rapture there's only one that is explicitly that's really known to be explicit about the rapture and that is First Thessalonians four seventeen and eighteen, and then of course two verses that are used that are maybe a little more implicit is uh, John fourteen two, and First Corinthians fifteen fifty one to fifty two, and so from there those are the ones that a lot of people who dispensationalists mostly who believe in the rapture those are the ones that they say are the ones that best establish a rapture. Now there are three other verses that are referenced that are considered to be debatable as to whether they actually speak about the rapture. And those are Matthew 24, 31, 2 Thessalonians 1, 10, and Revelation 14, 14 to 16. So anyway, just just wanted to note that as we get mm-hmm. going here. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about what we mean when we say dispensational and things like that in just a few minutes. But I think it'd be good to just start by reading this passage that, that Greta is referring to, Matthew chapter 24, kind of around 36 through 41 is what she was looking at. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right, Greta. This passage has been used. In fact, I think we even found some current resources yeah. that still use this as, as referring to rapture. So let me just read the text so we all kind of have it in our, in our ear. Jesus says, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. So I think it might be good at this point to kind of look at where this theology of rapture came from because one thing I was kind of surprised to learn is that it is a very modern theology for the first thousands of years of the church history, there was no theology of rapture in this sense, that Jesus is going to come and take the righteous and escape this planet um, before tribulation. It's kind of like the modern understanding. Right. I think it developed around 18, 1820s, 1830s. Yeah. So I was I was surprised. That, yeah. And, and so, you know, in many ways, this question, this subject, this topic <laughs> opens up a whole a whole nest of questions. Right. You feel like the more you think through it, the more questions you have. Right. So, but that's okay because right. that's <laughs> what that's what we're doing. We're wrestling with theology exactly. and yeah, it can be confusing for sure. So, basically, the idea of rapture first emerged as we know it today in the early 19th century. So it happened in Glasgow, Scotland, um, that a teenage girl was at a revival and had a spiritual vision where basically there was a a pre-tribulation rapture, at which time the church would be taken out of this world and swept up into heaven. And this could have just been a once-and-done kind of event. This girl had this vision at this revival, But the thing was is that John Nelson Darby, a British minister, was there when this happened. Right, and he's one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren, and the Plymouth Brethren are just big proponents, maybe the originators of dispensationalism. Hmm. So he heard this vision, and he became convinced of its validity, and he started sharing it as truth. He started preaching it, and he brought this rapture gospel to America. And at that time, the Billy Graham of the, de- of the day was Dwight L. Moody. Right. <laughs> and so Darby and Moody talked at some point, and Dwight L. Moody became convinced of this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture of the righteous. And so he, Dwight L. Moody is credited as being the worldwide disseminator of pre-tribulation rapture. And, you know, which is interesting for Kevin and I because we met and graduated from, we were students at uh, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And so in the early part of the 20th century, the rapture gospel movement gained ground with the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible. This is also really fascinating to me. Um, I had one of those, by the way. Yeah, I know my dad (laughs) did too. So the Schofield Reference Bible was published in the early part of the 20th century. And it was not simply just a study Bible with references in the margins, but 
it actually inserted um, headings and study notes into the biblical text. And it, when if you turn in your Schofield Reference Bible to Matthew 24, you'll see that Schofield added the heading, quote, Jesus predicts the rapture. So, you know, the normal person reading their Bible and getting to the Gospel of Matthew would see right here in black and white in the Bible, it says that Jesus predicts the rapture. So, of course, this became accepted as biblical fact, biblical truth. So the rise and the widespread acceptance of this lay theological movement, and that just means the theology of the people, basically, the, the the guy on the street. Yeah. It was further solidified by the emergence of schools, specifically the Dallas Theological Seminary. Yeah. It was founded because this rapture theology was really gaining ground with the lay people in America. And I think there was a, a desire to add some scholarly credibility yeah. to the theology, which according to some sources we've looked at, is was the main reason that Dallas Theological Seminary was established, was to... Add some credibility, some scholarly credibility to this rapture or this dispensational theology. Yeah, so yeah. I guess rapture is a, a tenet, a core tenet of dispensationalism, you could say. I mean, disp- dispensation is a whole range of things. Well, I mean, they have. The, I don't know if it's a core tenet, but I mean, it's their their biggest things are... Israel and the church are separate, and they have a literal hermeneutic. I mean, they're, they want to talk core tenets. Those are their foundational tenets. But they definitely believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Many do. They debate, yes. But yeah, I think they, yeah. Most, they mostly do. But I, I think it's worth noting, too, that I, we've said this before, but both of us obviously went to Moody Bible. We are We were steeped in dispensational theology. Many of our professors were professors from Dallas Theological Seminary. In fact, every systematic theology course I took at Moody, my professor was a doctor from Dallas Theological Seminary. So we're not unfamiliar with this theology at all, but here we are maybe setting it aside Mm. and we can get into that. But I think what's important here is context when we're reading this Matthew passage because on the surface, it might seem like it's talking about the rapture, but I think when we start digging a little deeper and we look at the context of the entire passage, it's maybe not. And it falls within what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's one of five discourses that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew. And it's almost say it's a judgment discourse, but right before it talks about a person being taken away and one person being left, it, it mentions Noah and it mentions the flood and that time and how, and we'll get into it, but I, I just want to emphasize the context is everything. And then the, and the other important thing here is, and many dispensationalists might not agree with this statement. They believed in a literal hermeneutic. What they meant was a normal reading of the text, but at the same, and they would recognize metaphor and they would recognize some symbology things like that. But if you made the statement, which some do, like Grant Osborne might make in his hermeneutical spiral book, that meaning is genre dependent, mm-hmm. many dispensationalists might not agree with that statement. And so what we mean by that is there is there are parables in the Gospels, and parabolic literature is a, a kind of a 
it's not quite a wisdom literature, but it's kind of like a riddle. But Proverbs have been compared to parabolic literature. There's also apocalyptic literature. The Pentateuch is, you know, however you want to say it. Some call it narrative. There are historical books mm-hmm. like the Kings, First and Second Samuel. Those are historical books in the Old Testament. There's, you know, like we, we talked about Daniel. It's a mix of apocalyptic and maybe narrative or historical. Um, they're just, you know, the Gospels. They're, they're, they're a different kind of literature. And there's even in this particular discourse, some say that this passage we're talking about right now, Jesus is even mentioning he's using a little bit of a apocalyptic language. And so it's a different kind of literature. And then Revelation, obviously, but then the epistles, that's a different kind of literature to their letters. So mm-hmm. these kinds of genres that make up the Bible maybe need to be interpreted carefully um, within their literary framework, so to speak, their, 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 their genre. And of course, of course, there's the Psalms, Proverbs, which Psalms kind of poetry and, you know, Ecclesiastes, these kinds of things. So this is something to keep in mind that as we approach these different genres, we need to be aware of what it is we're reading and how we should be reading them. So, And, and I think uh, my impression, and I'm asking you, Kevin, um, I mean, do theologians kind of agree that some of the gospels, the parables specifically, the way Jesus would teach sometimes are some of the most difficult to exegete, to really... Oh, absolutely. To figure out the right hermeneutic for it, to figure out exactly what in the world Jesus is saying. Well, even he said that he was trying, he, he used parables in many ways to make things hard to understand, specifically for the Pharisees and scribes. Right. But even his disciples had trouble sometimes understanding what he was getting at. Right. And and one particular, in Grant Osborne, in his book, The Hermeneutical Spiral, he makes the point that Jesus is actually challenging all of us with parables to think more deeply yeah. about the text, about the, the whole text, not any proof texting, but to think about the kingdom of God yeah. and, and what Jesus is trying to get to. He's kind of forcing us to really think more deeply yeah. about the entire Which, story. On the one hand, I love, right? I love that when people would come to Jesus and ask him a question or when the Pharisees would challenge Jesus with a question, right? Jesus would not just say, okay, here it is, and I'm going to lay it out in this really clear, systematic answer. Right? He'd be like, oh, let me tell you a story. And they're, conf- exactly. they're confusing stories sometimes. I mean, you know, you know the one that everybody goes to is the Good Samaritan. It's very right. clear. It's very easy to understand, right. in, my, in my opinion. But some of the stuff that Jesus says in these parables and in these teachings, you're like, what are you right. saying? Well, even Grant Osborne would say the, the Good Samaritan is one where it kind of follows a, a Jewish um, parable storytelling, so to speak, where their use of using parables to expand on a previous passage of, of, the, of Scripture. So some would say, you know, love your neighbor, the, the Good Samaritan is expanding on that. And, but not ever, not all the ways Jesus didn't use that method consistently throughout all his parables. So, yeah. and, and one other point I want to make, and that is when it, in regards to dispensationalism and the dispensational, however you want to say it, the paradigm, the dispensational theology, one of the things that is the most challenging to dispensational theology, one of the forms of literature that is the most challenging, they almost don't know what to do with this form are the Gospels. Yeah, The Gospels are like a monkey wrench in dispensational theology. They're very challenging to dispensationalists. So some, some might hearing this might feel like, oh, no, no, no. But yes, yeah. the, the Gospels do not fit nicely into dispensational theology. 
Right. And I mean, it, it could be really frustrating if you're going to a dispensational school and you're going to a dispensational church that, okay, why do we only talk about Paul? Right. Like, why do we spend 99.9% of our time studying the epistles? Yep. We're not called Paulines. We're called Christians. Yeah. Like, let's get to what Jesus said. So, yeah. So, yeah, here we are in Matthew 24. These are the words of Jesus. And, you know, just a few verses earlier, he's talking to his disciples about how the temple is going to be destroyed in the historical context. And then a few verses later, it seems like he's talking more about the end of, of this age. And so even that is a little bit confusing. Like, well, okay, where is he talking? Where does it change from, from what he's from one subject to the next? So, um, so I would like to read from J Richard Middleton's book. Uh, we've been referring to this a fair amount in our podcast so far. Uh, his book is a new heaven and a new earth. Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology. And this is his passage specifically talking about this Matthew 24, 40 to 41 verse that Greta asked us about. So this is Middleton's take on it. The other standard proof text for the rapture in popular eschatology is Matthew 24, 40 to 41. And he mentions the parallel text in Luke 17. In these texts, Jesus explains what will happen when the Son of Man returns. According to Matthew 24, 40 to 41, quote, Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken, and, the one, and one will be left. The problem is, the common assumption of many biblical interpreters is that the one taken is the believer going to heaven to be with the Lord. And this is identified with the, quote, rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The problem is that we do not typically read these texts carefully enough. Let us pay close attention to the comparison Jesus makes in Matthew 24. He begins by describing what life was like in the time of Noah, when people did not expect the flood. Jesus' point in verse 39 is that just as the people of Noah's time quote, knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man, unquote. Note carefully who is being taken away, according to Jesus. The phrase, swept them all away, clearly describes judgment on the wicked. It was Noah and his family who were left on the earth after the flood. Thus, when Jesus introduces the eschatological equivalent to the days of Noah, the analogy he draws between the two events makes it clear that the ones taken are the unrighteous. They are taken to judgment. Interesting, right? Yeah, because, I mean, it's, this seems like this is probably the phrase that Jerry Jenkins and, and LaHaye used in their Left Behind. Possibly. They may theory. have gotten it from other... Yeah, maybe, but... So... This should have made Jesus' point even more obvious for readers of those translations. The fact that so many have misread who is taken and who is left, despite such clear verbal clues, is a powerful example of how our assumptions about what a text says can predetermine what we see in the text. So mm. that, that's very true, too. Like when, right. we, when we go at it with an assumption that, this sounds like he's talking about a rapture. We're, we're going to see that, even though it's really clear when he lays it out like this, that, yeah, the people being taken away in the days of Noah were the unrighteous. The people who got to stay here were Noah and his family, the righteous. 
Although Matthew 24, 40 through 41 is often used to support the rapture in popular eschatology, it is significant that this text is not typically appealed to by dispensationalist theologians and Bible scholars. Even Hal Lindsey's bestseller, The Late Great Planet Earth, which resolutely emphasizes the rapture, never appeals to, the verse, to these verses. They're absent also in the second editions of the three views of the rapture published by Sondervan does not address these passages as having to do with the rapture. Although early dispensationalists such as John Nelson Darby and William E. Blackstone cited this text in arguing for the rapture, as early as 1925, dispensationalists had begun to back off from using it as part of their argument. Though, although, like I said, I found some pretty pretty current resources right. even now that, that say that these verses are about a rapture. So it's still out there. So the fact that the rapture interpretation of Matthew 24, 40 through 41 persists in the North American evangelical tradition indicates how far this tradition has departed from the classic tenets of uh, the scholarly dispensationalism. And he says, since, and he's kind of wrapping up his argument on this, and he says that if neither 1 Thessalonians 4, which we're going to discuss in a minute, nor Matthew 24 teaches the rapture, we have no good reason to think that this idea is any part of biblical eschatology. Right. And it's worth noting in our research, we've come to realize that nowhere in any apocalyptic literature, basically Revelation, Daniel, is a rapture ever mentioned. Right. And Jesus never described, like, never describes a rapture of right. the of the elector of of the righteous. So yeah, at the end of the day, the, I guess our answer to this question, like how do we understand this Matthew text, is that if anything, or what's what is clear, is that you know two people are together and one is taken and one is left, right? But what's clear from the clues in the text is that. It's the righteous who are actually left. Right. It's the, the the ones who are taken are actually taken to judgment. Right. The ones that are swept away taken. So um, in this particular case, being left behind <laughs> is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So kind yeah. of like a little twist there, a little, yeah. su- little surprise. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. But I think it would be good to discuss, you know, what, what a lot of these people are saying is the main text that, seems to support a rapture, which is the first Thessalonians. Okay, so the most explicit passage in the Bible that talks about a rapture that that people who adhere to a rapture view use is First Thessalonians four, and I'm gonna read thirteen to eighteen, and I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Interesting read. So as I understand it, the church in Thessalonica was being persecuted. Yes. And by the Romans. The question that Paul wants to their their question that Paul wants to answer in this passage is okay, those of us who have been killed or who have passed away, are they going to miss out on God's kingdom coming to earth? And he's he he wants to comfort them and say absolutely not. Right. That they are going to be resurrected and they are going to take full participation in the new creation. And so that is the central thrust or the context. Yes. Yeah, the main point of this particular passage is that Paul is trying to reassure these the church here in Thessalonica that the believers who have died will not miss out on being in eternity. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say and this is what we well, you know what we call, you know, the second coming of Christ or the parousia and there's no doubt, obviously, there's going to be a second coming of Christ, the Berusia, but many dispensationalists have added the rapture to that. Mm. And so this passage does seem pretty clear, right? We're going to meet the Lord in the air. Yeah, if I could borrow from some of what our friend N.T. Wright has, has written about this passage. So N.T. Wright very helpfully points out some of what Paul is doing in terms of calling forth uh, cultural and political and literary references that his listeners or his readers in Thessalonica would recognize. Little did he know, this is right, of course, saying, little did he know how his rich metaphors would be misunderstood two millennia later. So first of all, Paul echoes the story of Moses coming down the mountain with the Torah. The trumpet sounds, a loud voice is heard, and after a long wait, Moses comes to see what's been going on in his absence. So his readers would have recognized that illusion. They, they're very familiar with the story of, of Moses coming down the mountain. Um, secondly, Paul is echoing Daniel 7, in which the people of the saints of the Most High are vindicated over their pagan enemy by being raised up to sit with God in glory. This metaphor applied to Jesus in the Gospels is now applied to Christians who are suffering persecution. And third, and this is the one that is most compelling in my mind, and, and it's also echoed by other theologians that we've looked at. Of course, I'm going to blank out on the name. Be- ben, ben Witherington, Witherington. III. Ben Witherington yes. III, uh, Marvin Pate, yes. Middleton. I, I mean, there are others. Basically, the view were proposing here several theologians are proposing as well so the third one that we need to understand and this again is the more you understand about the culture of the early church kind of that ancient near eastern mindset what they knew and what they would hear or what they would understand in the reading of this letter the more we understand that the more it becomes very clear what paul is doing here which we don't necessarily understand as people living in this day and age uh, in America. But Paul is conjuring up images of an emperor visiting a colony or province, or some of the other theologians just said, like a king coming home to his city. So again, if you 
if you're picturing a walled city, the king coming home would be recognized by the gatekeepers. The watchmen. Yes, up on the wall. And they would cry out, identify yourself. Who is it that it's approaching? And the herald of the king would blow the trumpet and they would identify that the, it's the king. It's the king that's coming home. So I'll just keep reading and then I'll continue to talk freely. But um, so third, Paul conjures up images of an emperor visiting a colony or province. The citizens go out to meet him in open country and then escort him into the city. Paul's image of the people meeting the Lord in the air should be read with the assumption that the people will immediately turn around and lead the Lord back to the newly remade world. So again, this understanding that the people of Thessalonica would recognize this imagery. The king is coming home to the city. The people realize their king has returned. There's a welcome entourage. Everybody goes out onto the road, out of sight of the city, into the open country to properly greet their king mm-hmm. with instruments and dancing and singing. And, you right. know, it's, a, it's, it's like a, a triumphal entry, so to speak. It's, it's a celebration. Our king is home. Right. Everything is going to be okay, right? And they greet the king and welcome the king home back into his city to, to dwell with them. So if that is how the Thessalonians would have read this passage, that the trumpet's going to sound, the Lord will return. Well, the, the, the dead in Christ will rise. Yeah. And then the dead in Christ and the people who are the Christians who are alive will join in the procession and bring the king back to the city. Exactly. So that's, again, that's very enlightening to us modern Westerners who read it very differently and have you know, been taught it very differently because we hear it, we've been read, reading it that Jesus comes, we fly up into the air, and we all escape to heaven, and we escape this terrible world of sin, right? Right. Actually, no, Jesus is coming to set up residence here with us, set up the kingdom of God here, and we're going out to welcome him home and then to reign with him here. Right. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And what I was thinking, too, is even if it's true, the question becomes, like, what is the point of the rapture? And in reality, the rapture by dispensationalists was really just for Christians, believers, to avoid tribulation. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of persecution going on at that time. Yeah, in a lot of these letters, they were written at a time when Christians were being persecuted. Many, uh, if you read some of the history of the Roman emperors at that time, like Domitian and Nero, you know, Nero's known for crucifying Christians upside down on crosses, and he also would uh, tie Christians to stakes and smear them with pitch and oil and then light them on fire, and they were like human candles to light his garden. So Christians were being blamed for a lot of things. There was a fire in Rome, and many emperors were blaming them, and so they were just being heavily persecuted. And so Thessalonians is kind of written in a time like that to provide some level of comfort. And also just to kind of circle back, but even the idea of apocalyptic literature, it's actually written um, in some ways to provide some level of comfort and hope for people in crisis during times of persecution. And just reading from a, a book I have, Understanding the Book of Revelation, it's actually a short book. 
It says, most scholars believe that apocalyptic literature grew out of Hebrew prophecy and actually represents an intensified form of prophecy written during a time of crisis. Very interesting. And then further, it says, as an apocalypse, Revelation assumes a situation of crisis and growing hopelessness. God's people are facing difficult times as hostile powers threaten to overwhelm them. No matter how bleak the situation, however, God is portrayed as sovereign and trustworthy. There is the clear promise in apocalyptic that God will one day intervene to punish the wicked and destroy evil. The visions included in apocalyptic transport readers to another world in order to give them heavenly perspective, which allows them to persevere. In addition to endurance, the righteous are also called to holy and blameless living as they follow the only God worthy of worship. In the end, God will restore creation and live forever with his people in perfect community. Mm. So that's just another sense of just that description of apocalyptic literature even kind of reminds me of the blues, right? Mm. Right. A lot of times you're feeling down, you, you, you sing or you play the blues, and then you feel better. Right. Anyway, it's just an idea. Yeah. So I think it's so interesting that these authors are saying that this is a modern, primarily American obsession, this, yeah. this idea of rapture that apparently, and this is something I'm very curious about and I'd like to research more, is apparently Catholics don't hold a theology of rapture. The Orthodox don't believe in rapture. A lot of other Protestants don't believe. Right, it's really a lot, really American. It's a, a lot of American Protestants. Yeah, where because us growing up with it, it just seemed like it was the mainstream understanding. Right, and I think many of these people reference in the '70s. There were those books by Hal Lindsey called one was called "The Late Great Planet Earth," where he's really proposing or pushing a dispensational theology about many things, including the rapture. I think he even had a book called The Rapture, if I'm not mistaken. And then, of course, we know, like, the Left Behind series published by Tyndale House and is made into movies, very popular. And, again, what I think what I was mentioning last time, I think you mentioned this last episode, that many people are dispensational by osmosis. They might not even realize they might hold to dispensational, some level of dispensational theology, but even a lot of the, I mentioned CCM, Christian music. And it's funny, while I was studying some of this this past week, I started listening, going back and listening to some of the music that I used to listen to, Petra, My Mom, Lefebvre. It was kind of fun. But a lot of that music, there's a lo- there's a strong sense of getting out of here, mm-hmm. of escaping this place, this evil, sinful world. And could even play some if we wanted just to hear what I'm talking about. It's pretty funny to me to hear it. Sure. I'm just going to play a little excerpt from one of the songs I was listening to. This is uh, from My Little Ever and Broken Heart. This is a song called Gospel Ship. So there you go. What does he say? He goes, he's going far beyond the sky. He's leaving. He's going far beyond the sky. And 
He also says, Bid this world goodbye. Bid this world goodbye. Earlier in the song, he says, Leave this world of sin behind. Yeah. yeah. And so the whole song, anyway, it's just some examples of, I think a lot of the CCM contributes to this dispensational understanding. I know a lot of it does. I know Petra has a lot of songs that talk like this, that mention this kind of leaving. And there are other CCM artists that do this. And probably more current ones that we're too old to know about right now because <laughs> we haven't been keeping up. <laughs> That's true. We haven't been keeping up. We know a few, but anyway. All right. Yeah. A little fun uh, aside there. Yeah. It was formational for you, for sure. And me <laughs> as well. <laughs> and now we're like wondering what to do with it. See, that's the tricky thing is because these people were are believers and they are righteous people right. and they do say a lot of truth right. in their music. A lot of truth is in there. Right. And then there's these little things that were like, oh, I don't know if that's actually what the Bible said. Right. And again, we come at this with extreme humility, knowing that we do not know so much but we're doing our best to figure it out and be faithful readers of the text. That's what we are trying to do. So, yeah. So, so no disrespect to anybody who's, who's using their gifts to worship God and to help other people worship God. But, but yeah, as, as we've kind of tried to reiterate, maybe we haven't said it today, but what we believe is going to happen to this earth, this world, this creation does greatly affect how we live in this world. Right. And for too long, I think we would argue that the church has believed that we're escaping, that this world is going to burn, that it doesn't matter to God. And so we have allowed ourselves to just kind of let ourselves off the hook when it comes to actually caring for creation. And I think that a lot of people see a big problem with that, including mm. us. So. Right. But yeah, one of the things it might be worth just mentioning is some of the effects of this rapture theology, um, especially when it's being taught to young people, right? I mean, we always need to be very careful, you know, and this is consistent with scripture too, that when we are teaching young people about God, we have to be very, very careful because, you know, there's such a thing as spiritual abuse where people are actually robbed of their faith because of what they've been taught or the hypocrisy within what they see in their leaders. So I just kind of wanted to get into that a little bit. And taking from N.T. Wright again, he says, seen from my side of the Atlantic, the phenomenal success of the Left Behind books appears puzzling, even bizarre. Few in the U.K. hold the belief on which the popular series of novels is based, that there will be a literal rapture in which believers will be snatched up to heaven, leaving empty cars crashing on freeways and kids coming home from school only to find that their parents have been taken to be with Jesus while they have been left behind. This pseudo-theological version of Home Alone has reportedly frightened many children into some kind of distorted faith. And I've heard other people talk about this in different ways, that they were traumatized by what they were taught about that God, Jesus is going to come and take away the righteous, and if you're not right with God, you could get left here. Interestingly, several publications, even just in the past year, have written about this. Just an initial Google search will bring up some stuff. CNN in September of 22 
has a article entitled, For Some Christians, Rapture Anxiety Can Take a Lifetime to Heal. Substack has something by Michael Bird talking about rapture trauma. Uh, the National, National Endowment for the Humanities.gov wrote extensively an article um, back in 22 about the rise of rapture horror culture. And something published by the Global Center for Religious Research, Rapture Anxiety. And the subtitle is The Disgraceful History of Prophecy Pundits and Harmful Apocalyptic Hysteria. In fact, I think there's even support groups of, of sorts where people really? people write in like, hey, did, did anybody else have this experience? You know, like I came home one day and my parents weren't there. My siblings weren't there. And I saw like a pile of clothes on the floor and I went into a panic as a child that I had been left behind. And so I think this person like started like a little, I don't know if it's a Facebook group or what, but she's like, did anybody else experience something? And, and all kinds of people have come forward. So wow. That's crazy. So, yeah, we just need to be really careful about the fear that we're using to get people to believe. And that's a whole subject within itself. But I think that giving people hope that God is consistent with God's character and God's character is to not give up on anything or anybody. And uh, also, if, if we keep saying that our God is a peaceful and loving God that peaceful and loving God or that peaceful and loving person believer is not going to manipulate anyone. You know what I mean? That would be inconsistent. And that to me, I just think about it. It does make me think about animals and I know we're vegan theology and we haven't really spent a lot of time this episode talking about that, but animals are just consistently manipulated and that's a whole, it's a whole mindset. It's just now books are being written on this, this this domination mindset and how that just leads to everything from slavery to genocide to animal agriculture. And it's something that we need to, part of our jobs as Christians is to push this new creation, push this kingdom ethics, this beatitudinal living ethic that we're not manipulating people yeah. and animals yeah. and the earth. So again, I think we, we definitely do affirm the doctrine that Jesus is coming. Je- there is a second coming. Absolutely. A, a, a second, a, an appearing, right? Where Jesus arrives and sets up ki- his kingdom on, on, this, earth. on this earth and, and redeems this creation. And, and so it's, it should be a very hopeful message. It should be good news. It should not be something that strikes people with fear. So, yeah, and he writes... The whole New Testament building on ancient biblical prophecy envisages that the creator God will remake heaven and earth entirely, affirming the goodness of the old creation, but overcoming its mortality and corruptibility. When that happens, Jesus will appear with the resulting new world. I hope, Hopefully, we've been able to say that Matthew passage is not talking about the evil or the, the unrighteous being left behind and that the Thessalonians passage talks about Jesus coming and us going out to welcome him onto the new creation. Yeah, Greta, hopefully we answered your question. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, if not, we can try again. <laughs> it was a long road, but hopefully we kind of gave some, a satisfactory response. Ho- hopefully. Yeah, so. So now that we've established some kind of theological foundation, 
that we'll be able to come back and reference as we move forward. There's many things that we're going to be discussing in episodes to come. Uh, we know that there's passages, you know, troubling passages that, that do seem violent in, in Scripture that we need to address and answer. But there's also a lot of vegan theologians who have published works that we, we want to discuss, as, as well as many other things. So we're excited for what's to come, and we thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Yeah, see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.